Well, if you've got your Bibles, let's open them to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I appreciate the opportunity to speak tonight. It's always a pleasure, at least on my part, probably not so much on yours, but it's always uh, an encouragement to me to be able to be here and preach the Word and sing songs with my brothers and sisters in Christ. As Pastor Mark said, we're going to cover a lot of ground in Ecclesiastes. What I'd like to do tonight is simply uh, give a brief bird's eye view of the book of Ecclesiastes and explain to us why it's so important to us. Now, most of you know, uh, if you're familiar with Ecclesiastes, it has that famous phrase in it in chapter 1, verse 2, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And we're going to talk about that. Uh, Many of the commentaries as I was reading and studying, many of them referred to this verse as the motto of the book, or the motto, Uh, like a mantra, the words to live by, the motto, what I say every day, like the Boy Scouts have, be prepared, I'm going to live by that. The Trail Life fellows that are here told me this morning, their motto is walk worthy, okay? It's a motto, something to live by, right? But I would like to submit to you this idea that Ecclesiastes, the motto is not vanity of vanities, all is vanity I think this is more a summary of the heart of the speaker. But we're going to look at a couple of things here. And, and, and what I want us to do, again, as we look at this bird's eye view of Ecclesiastes, I want to point out a couple of things that are very important for us to understand about the book. Because I think if we get these things wrong, we will misinterpret the book. How many of you heard that Ecclesiastes is about finding the meaning of life? That's not it. How many of you heard it's about having success in life? I don't think that's it entirely, okay? There's a deeper message in Ecclesiastes, and we, we miss that if we don't start with a proper uh, hermeneutic even uh, as we examine this book. So we're going to look at some things that I think might help you to see Ecclesiastes from a, a slightly different perspective, but I think it's the right one. I could be wrong. If I am, just chase me out afterwards and, and never ask me to come back. Uh, so number of verses that we're going to look at starting in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 2 what some would call the motto in Ecclesiastes vanity of vanities says the preacher vanity of vanities all is vanity now it's interesting that we note right off the bat here that this verse Uh, is repeated in um, chapter 12, verse 8. Vanity, let me find it here. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Let me ask you, what do you think of when you hear this word vanity? Vanity. Vanity of vanities. Anybody have any ideas? Maybe you have a different uh, English translation. 
What does your Bible say if you have a different English translation than what we're using? I use the ESV. Anything different than vanity? Some Bibles, some English Bibles will say uh, meaninglessness, meaningless. Uh, NIV says that. Some will say futility, futile. This is futile. CSB, NASB, Net Bibles say that. I think the true meaning of this word actually gets lost in translation. In the English translation, I think because of that, we oftentimes will uh, miss the point of what is being said here. And so I'll tell you the Hebrew word, of course, I don't know Hebrew all that well. The Hebrew, it said, is hevel, hevelem, or havel, havelem. And the word actually in the Hebrew means a smoke or a vapor or a breath. That's the literal meaning of the word. In Ecclesiastes, according to the context as we read through it, you'll see that it kind of has two meanings. As we go through the book, you'll see that the author oftentimes speaks of vanity as being something that is temporary or fleeting, but he also speaks of it as, as, as having a form of mystery, a paradox, an enigma, this vanity, this vanity. We, we don't fully understand it. It's like smoke is the idea. And so what I have done, at least in my own Bible, uh, as I read this, I will often say, instead of reading the word vanity, I will simply say, Havel, so that my brain will associate the actual word. And that's a little trick I would encourage you to do as you read through Ecclesiastes. Hopefully you'll read it this week because you're going to walk away tonight just wowed and enamored and say, I can't wait to read Ecclesiastes. And so as you do so, read it and throw that word in there and think, Havel, Hevelem, says the preacher. This word that gets lost in translation, often translated as meaningless. But as, as I said, that's not exactly what it is. You see what the author of this book or what the preacher in this book is saying is he's not trying to say that life has no meaning. Rather, what he's trying to say is that life, the meaning of life isn't always clear. You get what I'm saying? Are you following the difference of what I just said? He's not saying life has no meaning. He's saying that sometimes the meaning of life is difficult to understand. It's not always clear. It's like smoke. And so in this book, he uses this phrase, this metaphor, to tie all sorts of disturbing ideas that we'll see later. He ties all these disturbing ideas together and says, Havel Hevelem, all is vanity, meaningless, futile. In fact, he says it almost 40 times. I can't remember if it's 38 or 39. Uh, the word Havel shows up in this book 38, I believe, or 39 times. And so what he's saying is, just like smoke, life is beautiful and mysterious it takes one shape and before you know it it takes another shape smoke oftentimes 
it's mysterious. It, it looks like something solid, but when you reach out to grasp it, your hand goes right through it. You can't grab it. It slips right through your fingertips. This breath, this smoke, this vapor. And just like smoke, when you're in that thick of it, it can be disorienting. It can be uh, something that's choking you. It can be impossible to see clearly. That's the same word picture that he wants us to associate when we read the words Hevel, Hevelem. And so, as I said, our English translations oftentimes miss that. But let's back up before we dive too deep into this and look at verse number one. Verse number one, Ecclesiastes 1, 1, it says the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And just as we have seen that it's important that we understand what he's talking about when he says the word vanity, Havel, we need to understand who is speaking, who is the author here. And I think that, again, we can, we can lose sight of what's happening in this book by misunderstanding the author, okay? So as it says in verse 1, the words of the preacher, comma, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. We need to understand this word that's used here, word that's in, in most of our Bibles is translated preacher, some English translations say um, teacher. But the word that's used here in the Hebrew, the word is actually koheleth. And it means literally the leader of the assembly or the speaker of the assembly. The one who calls people in to talk to them. And I think sometimes we, we, we get confused when we see the word preacher in this context because our idea is a preacher is someone who proclaims the gospel, right? That that's kind of our idea of a preacher. And in this sense, I'm not sure that's exactly where they're going, which is why I think it's important that sometimes some of the English translations say teacher rather than preacher, where even one English translation says simply uses the word koheleth in its place, the name koheleth. The term Koheleth is used uh, in this discourse um, in the first person. Um, as I said, it means to assemble. Many translations say preacher, others teacher. One uh, commentary that I read, he said, perhaps the best option is to leave the term untranslated and simply say Koheleth, as if this is the name of the person. And I like to do that myself, okay? So as we read this, I will probably say Koheleth in place of preacher so that you know who's talking. Because what, you're, what we're about to discover, which is my next point, is the book's outline. There's actually two voices speaking in the book of Ecclesiastes. And we oftentimes think that it's just the one, but it's not. There are two voices, two people speaking in the book of Ecclesiastes. So it's important that we know who is speaking and when they're speaking. And so I'll refer to one person as the author. And then when the preacher is speaking, I'll say, Koheleth. 
And I would encourage you to do that as you study Ecclesiastes on your own. If you're taking notes, there's a simple outline of the book that will help you to see who is speaking, when and where. And so I would say if you want an outline of the book, the first point of the book is the prologue or the introduction. And it starts in 1, 1, and goes to 1, 11. 1, 1 to 1, 11, the author of the book is speaking. It's written in the third person. When we get to the next verse, 112, that is the monologue. That's the meat of the book, and that's when Koheleth is actually speaking. All right, are you following? I know this can get complicated. So, point one, you've got the prologue and the introduction, 1-1 through 111. Point two of the book is the monologue, 112 to 127. That's the majority of the book. Koheleth, the preacher, is speaking, and then it concludes in the third point of the book's outline in the epilogue or the conclusion, which takes place in chapter 12, verse 8 through 14, and that's where the author of the book is speaking, all right? That's where the author is speaking. So you've got the author speaking in one, the prologue, the introduction, and the author speaking in the end, the conclusion, the epilogue, in the middle, in the meat of the book, you have Koheleth, the preacher, the teacher, speaking. And as I said, it's vitally important to interpreting this book that we understand that there's two people speaking, the author of Ecclesiastes and the preacher slash teacher Koheleth. And time will not permit us to look too deeply into it, but there are some who would say this book is written by Solomon, and there are some who say it was not. The evidence that I see as I've studied the book, I believe it was not Solomon. We can talk about that some other time. But nowhere does it say it's Solomon. It says it's Koheleth. And so I'll refer to him as Koheleth. So, again, repeating this mantra, Ecclesiastes 1, 2, Ecclesiastes 12, 8, this mantra, this summary, this is the author speaking. He's summarizing Koheleth's words. Koheleth is saying that vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, hevel hevelem. Koheleth has a question. And again, what we see, remember, in verses 1 through 11, this is the author speaking. The author summarizes Koheleth's message at the beginning of the book in this introduction. So in verse 3, the author is telling us what Koheleth's question is. Verse 3 says this, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? How many of you have ever asked that question? Wow, life is hard. What is the point of this or that? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Again, there's a couple of words here that I think are important that we see. The first word is man. In, this, in, in the Hebrew Bible, 
The word that is used here for man is interesting. There's a Hebrew word that is most commonly used for man, and they don't use that one here. (laughs) Here, they use the word Adam. It's interesting. And there's a reason for that. I'll get to that in a moment. So, you could think of it as saying this. What does Adam gain by all the toil? Or maybe you could think of it more as what does the son of Adam. You remember like uh, the Chronicle of Narnia, you know? He oftentimes refers to the children as son of Adam, son of Adam. That's just talking about mankind, but he's trying to put something on that. He doesn't want us to just think of ourselves as people, but he wants us to think of ourselves as people belonging to God, part of God's creation, that I am a son of Adam, not just that God created me, but the, and that I belong to him, but that also I am a part of where I am suffering under the fall. And I think that's important, that we understand that, again, a lot of things here that we need to understand as we interpret this book. When he says man, he's using the word Adam. What does, and in fact, in a number of places throughout the book, he says son of man, children of man, okay? So that expression that, that we, like I mentioned from Chronicles of Narnia is there. What does the son of man, what do the children of Adam gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The word gain here speaks of a, a surplus, a gain. What advantage does this have over something else? And throughout the book, you'll see Kaheleth talking about things that are vain, that are hevel, hevelem. He says this thing and that thing, they, you weigh these two things in your hand and he says, what good is this over that? You'll, as you read it, he'll talk about wisdom and folly. And at one point he'll say, folly. Ah. And then he'll say, but wisdom's not so great all the time either. And it's just bizarre sometimes to see some of the things that Koheleth says. We'll get to that as well. So he speaks of this gain. What profit do we have with all our toil? And again, this is another one of those words that shows up 22 times in this book. And we, our Bibles translate it differently, and we see the word as toil. And you might think of, oh yeah, like hard work. I toil at my job, or I toil over the dishes, or whatever it might be. But the word actually translated means trouble. What does... Adam, a son of Adam, gained by all the trouble at which he is troubled with under the sun. It's translated all sorts of ways throughout the Old Testament. Trouble, mischief, misery, wrong, hardship, miserable, labor, wearisome, injustice. But in this book, it's often translated as toil. But keep in mind, this idea is this idea of trouble. And then again, this phrase that he uses, under the sun, under the sun. Koheleth uses it 27 times twice, the author uses it, uh, but 27 times Koheleth speaks of life under the sun. What he's wanting us to understand that, that he's trying to take perhaps an earthly perspective of everything that goes on around us, a, a, a worldly perspective. Koheleth is offering us a realistic portrayal of a world that suffers 
under the curse. That is what Koheleth is burdened with. How we are all suffering under the fall. Just a couple of weeks ago, we were at the dinner table eating dinner. I don't remember what we were having or what sparked the conversation, but Trinity had a question with, you know, a normal question that kids have. She said, Dad, why do people get sick? And Madison, in her infinite wisdom as a teenager, she just blurts out the answer as if, here's the answer, didn't even stop, kept eating, you know. She simply said, because of the fall, and kept eating. And I was like, well, you're so right. And Trinity, in her third grade wisdom, said, but we get sick in the winter too. (laughs) (laughs) The perspective that Koheleth is taking in this book is a perspective that is Focusing on life under the sun. How we live under the curse. What am I to do with that, Koheleth says. And so he has these key questions that he asks. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun, 2.22 says. 3.9, what gain has the worker from his toil? 5.16, what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? He oftentimes speaks of this situation we find ourselves in life in. He says it's hevel, hevelem. It's a chasing after the wind. It's like taking, reaching for that smoke and it goes right through your hands. A chasing after the wind. We can't chase the wind, can we? We can't catch it. It goes whichever way it chooses and we have no control over it. And that's the picture, part of the word picture that he's painting here. And so the author, not Koheleth, shares a poem with us that gives us an introduction to the problem of the book. And so in verses 1, uh, 4 through 11, we see this poem in uh, three parts that observe kind of three things that Kaheleth is going to get to. The first thing that we see is in verse 4 through 7. He says this, um, and listen as I read it and ask yourself, is this, is this verse talking about the wonders of creation? Or is it talking about the futility of nature? Ecclesiastes 1, 4, the author summarizing Kaheleth says, A generation goes, and a generation comes. But the earth remains forever. The sun rises, and the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the winds return. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. 
to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. I hope you can see the frustration that is in his heart as he talks about how, how, this, how nature works. It's this constant movement with no discernible purpose is what he's speaking of. And of course, I know, yes, God is the creator. And there are beautiful things in nature to see. And I'm not belittling that. But what Koheleth is pointing at throughout the book is this Endless cycle, every day, another day of weariness under the sun. The sun is weary as it rises again and goes here and comes up again and goes there and the water goes down to the sea and the sea is never full. (sighs) That's the emotion that he's trying to get us to understand. He says in the next part of this poem, verse 8, He says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. He's speaking of the limitations of human uh, human function, right? We're all getting older, right? I've realized I'm 44. I just recently realized I keep like getting out of bed and going to work and I'm like hey I'm tired I'm I'm old I'm tired all the time and and like 20 years ago I was never tired and now I'm just like I'm always tired and I I've realized I'm 44 and some of you that are like maybe 84 are like yeah just wait buddy you know this is what he's talking about okay I will perpetually be tired for the rest of my life and it will probably only get worse that's what he's speaking of here verse 9 9 through 11, as the author gives this introduction of Kohela's heart, he tells us in verse 9, this final part of this introductory poem to the book, he says, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. The author is pointing us to this paralyzing repetition of the past. History seems like it's going nowhere. It just keeps going and going and going. He says people are destined to live lives that can never achieve true fulfillment. This poem that the author gives to us prepares our hearts for the ensuing struggle that Koheleth gives where he shows nothing in life works and everything falls short of expectation. And so the very next verse, verse 12, it's as if the author has gone and sat down and Koheleth walks up and he speaks. And many will read what Koheleth has to say and say, man, he's pessimistic. He's quite skeptical. And well, he might be. Verse 12 starts with the word I. That's where the transition changes. That's why I put that as point number two in the book's outline. Now Koheleth is speaking. And he says, I, the preacher, I, Koheleth, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And then in verse 13, he tells us his quest. This is what I'm going to do. I applied my heart 
to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Remember this whole portion, the rest of the book until we get to the end, is this monologue where Koheleth is speaking. And as I mentioned, he's, he's oftentimes seen as, as pessimistic. He's oftentimes seen as um, skeptical. But he also does insert a lot of interesting truth. But there's three problems, really, that he focuses on throughout the rest of the, the monologue. And we don't have time to look at all of them because, well, it's a lot to look at. So I'm just going to paraphrase the three problems that Koheleth is burdened with maybe the most in the book. Koheleth's conundrum, first one, is the conundrum of time. We've already seen it alluded to in the introduction as the author gave it in Ecclesiastes 1.4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Time keeps on ticking. 111, the author says, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Koheleth is confused about the perplexity of time, the conundrum, he states in chapter 3, that beautiful poem that you're all so familiar with. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And then he starts the poem, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal. How many have ever heard this poem before? There's a a story that I read, I think it was in a Jeff Shahara book uh, about the uh, American Revolution. I don't remember uh, the details because, well, I'm ADD, I forget everything. Uh, He's telling this story about uh, a preacher and war is coming. It's the American Revolution. And the preacher gets up there and he preaches this sermon and he closes with this verse. And he says, it's a time to love, a time to hate, and a time for war. And he rips off his little whatever vestments that they wear and he's got his uniform on. And he walks out the door and joins the fight for the revolution. That is not what this text is talking about, okay? If you've ever heard somebody take this verse and say, well, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, so you should just get over your weeping now and laugh. That's not what it's talking about. Do you know who got it right? Pete Seeger. (laughs) The birds. Have you heard the song? A time to be born and a time to die. Turn, turn, turn. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? Even Dolly Parton did it. (laughs) The point that he's making is that life goes on and on and on in this what seems like an endless cycle. That's what Koheleth thinks. But did you notice how he started? For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. In very subtle ways, he still points us to the Creator. God is in control. What gain has the worker for his toil? I've seen the business that God has, he says in verse 9 and verse 10. 
Then in verse 11, even though he's perplexed with this conundrum of time, he says, well, he will make everything beautiful in his time. He has also put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And so even though it appears that Koheleth is, is skeptical and pessimistic, he's, he's perplexed with this problem of time, he still understands that God, his creator, Elohim, by the way, he never uses the name Yahweh. He only speaks of God as Elohim, our creator, not the covenant name of God. We'll get to that later if there's time. He's perplexed by this but he still recognizes God's sovereignty. Not only is he perplexed by this conundrum of time, he's also perplexed by this conundrum of death. He says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 19, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is hevel. In 9, verse 2, he says, It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and to the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live And after, they go to death. (laughs) This guy, Kaheleth, sounds a bit depressing. This is his problem, his conundrum. He's struggling through this. He has another one that he struggles with, and that's the conundrum of chance. It's seen in Ecclesiastes 9.11. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. It doesn't make sense to Kaheleth that good things happen to bad people. And that bad things happen to good people. This is the conundrum that he's going through. Koheleth is deeply perplexed by this. And so as you read that monologue that takes place where Koheleth is speaking in that main portion of the book, you will see these three conundrums over and over. Time, death, chance. These things don't make sense as we live here and toil under the sun. So what should we do about it? How should we then live is that famous question we always seek to answer. And what I find is interesting is that Koheleth gives us an answer. He gives us an answer in actually six places in the book. He says in numerous times, he speaks of the goodness of life under the sun. In four of those passages, he says, there is nothing better than this. Ecclesiastes 2.24. There is nothing better for a person 
than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Ecclesiastes 3.12 I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil for this is to this is God's gift to man. Koheleth understands that even in this life of struggle, of toil, God has given us good gifts. He says in Ecclesiastes 3.22, a similar statement. If you're writing these down, you want these six uh, to look at later. He says it again in Ecclesiastes 5.18 through 20. He speaks of this as the gift of God. Ecclesiastes 8.15, I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun than to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. And then finally, he repeats it in Ecclesiastes 9, 9 through 10. This one's my favorite. It's so romantic. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given to you under the sun. Because this is your portion in life. This passage right here, by the way, is, is one of the best ones out of those six. Because he works in enjoying life and the toil together. All right? Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given to you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, in the grave to which you are going. So what are we supposed to do with this? You see, Kohelath is not saying to take uh, a K-sarah-sarah kind of approach. He's not saying, well, fine, if, if life is hard, just bleh, give up and just enjoy it while you can. That's not what he's saying. It's a little deeper than that. Koheleth is understanding that we are under this curse. And so the application that he wants us to see, that he wants us to understand, is that since you and I cannot control our lives, we should stop trying. Stop trying to control your life. Learn to hold things with an open hand. Because you really only have control over one thing. And that's your attitude towards the present. Stop worrying, he says. Choose to enjoy a good conversation with a friend. In the passage in chapter 9, he says, enjoy the sun on your face. These are good gifts from God. Enjoy a good meal with the people that you care about. The simple things in life. And so he concludes in chapter 12, after Koheleth has gone on and on about the struggles and the trials that are he's facing in life. I'm gonna take a sip of water because my throat's very scratchy. Excuse me. 
Koheleth says, remember now. Remember also your creator. In the days of your youth, Koheleth is wrapping up his speech. He's pointed out all these problems. He's pointed out that we need to enjoy life. And he says, remember now your creator in the days of your youth. Before the days Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. And and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped. He's like these little cliches about death here. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the will broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it he starts the paragraph remember now your creator Elohim the God who is in control of everything he wants us to remember that God is in charge that's what we're supposed to do with this Remember your creator because we are but dust. He says in verse 7, the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Here's what's interesting to note. A Hebrew reader would have immediately seen that phrase and would have thought immediately of the curse that God gave to Adam in Genesis chapter 3. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The Hebrew reader would immediately know that Koheleth, as I mentioned earlier, every time he speaks of this toil under the sun, his focus is the suffering that we experience because of the fall. You see, when we read the book of Proverbs, we deal with sin on a heart level, right? It speaks of sin on a heart level. When we read the book of Ecclesiastes, it's not on this heart level as much as it's the fall is everywhere. The fall affects every single one of us. It affects everything about us. The fall is what is the burden of Kohela's heart. You recall in Genesis chapter 3, the curse that he gave to the woman. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring. I'm sorry, this is the curse to the serpent as it applies to the woman's offspring. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God tells Adam that you will suffer because of sin. It will affect everything about your life, your work, your food, your family. But one day you will have a child, you will have a seed that comes and crushes that head. Check this out. This is very interesting. The very next passage in Genesis chapter 4, okay? In Genesis chapter 3, God has told Adam about the curse, the fall. He has told Eve that she will have a child, an offspring that will crush Satan's head. What happens in verse 1 of 4? Eve has a child. That first child, she has hope. She holds up her child and she says, she, says, uh, she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. You know what's happening here, right? Eve is excited. God gave me a promise. We are suffering under the fall, but look, he gave me a man. And maybe, perhaps, we will be set free. But do you know what happens? Eve quickly realizes, I don't know how old Cain was, but it didn't take long before Eve realizes that Cain was not that promised child. Because then she has another child in verse 2. And again, she bore his brother. What's his name? You're not going to believe this. But I'm going to tell you anyway. His name that we see here in our English Bible is Abel. But guess what it is? Hevel. His name is Hevel. Vanity. Meaningless. Smoke. Eve's heart is broken quickly when she realizes that she will live a long life under the curse. And she sees her own son kill her other child. And we can sing the words to that not Christmas song that we only sing at Christmas. Joy to the world. Eve's heart would say, no more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. So the book of Ecclesiastes, the author comes back and he steps up to the podium and he paraphrases again what Koheleth is saying. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is Hevel. Life is hard under the sun, but we have hope. He goes on to say in verse 9, 14, this is the author speaking. He says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight 
And uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. You see, the author knows there's hope. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. I think I skipped a line. For fear God and keep his commandments. This is the, the conclusion that the author gives after hearing Koheleth speak. The message of Ecclesiastes is not for the person struggling with sin in their own heart per se, but rather Koheleth's struggle is with the curse of sin and suffering that has fallen upon every man, upon every woman, upon every child, upon everything. This curse rests upon the whole of creation, and so we are left to cry out to our sovereign Father as we not just grow in faith, but we groan in faith. Life under the sun is hard. And we all suffer because of it. The book of Ecclesiastes is for the person who has been harmed or hurt or used and abused by others. The person who has been deeply wounded by the world around them. It has hope all throughout. I would encourage you this week, take your Bible, read Ecclesiastes. Write four little columns. Every time you read it and you hear Kohelet say, this is vanity, write it down. These things are hevel. And you will see that some of them are bad. We would say like morally bad. And some of them are not morally bad in any way. Write down that second column and say, these are the things that he says to enjoy. These are the things that he says to do. And again, he's not saying quesara, He's saying just life is hard. So enjoy the gifts that God has given you. And then in the third column, Write down everything you see about God the Father. Because even though Koheleth is deeply burdened with the fall, he still says things like, God is sovereign. He will make it right in his time. There is, what a great verse to share to the young person who's been abused. Struggling. God will do it right in his time. And so here we are left groaning, in faith. Romans chapter 8 speaks of this. If life under the sun was all that we had, we would sound very much like Koheleth. But we are promised something so much better. Life beyond the sun with his son. Romans 8 says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to, here's that word, says futility here, but it's the word havel, havel. We are subjected to this futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first, first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is it at the right hand of God? who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, all these things that are hevel, as it is written for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord.